You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul. Um, Our theme music is a clip of Summer Nights by the Eric Jones Trio. It's provided by our friend Mark Chesanow, who plays with the Eric Jones Trio every Thursday and Sunday at Good Times Jazz Bar downtown. Hey everyone, welcome to Arts on the Air. This is Tamara Garvey and I have the pleasure of sitting down with Ivan Chow. Welcome, Ivan. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm going to read a little bit from your Instagram bio. Ivan has sketched around the world in the capacity of architect, educator, artist, and author, and currently lives in Savannah, Georgia. And I did want to point out, I first came across your work um, through your, you have a public Instagram page that's your watercolor and ink sketches around Savannah and around the world. And, um, and then I'd seen your book in E. Shaver called Sketching Savannah. That's a beautiful kind of visual diary. But then in researching you, I learned that you are trained and professional, especially as an architect, mm-hmm. which is very cool. Mm-hmm. So let's get started. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about your first interest in architecture, how, the, how old you are. Oh, we're going that far back, huh? We are. Okay. We're, we start at the beginning of your creative process. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, I'll tell you can you. be brief. Um, I've actually wanted to be an architect since I was 10. Okay. So that was a while ago. Uh, in fact, my father was an architect. Uh, we were in Singapore. He practiced there uh, in a partnership. And then I got involved with just doodling. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where my interest in drawing began, 10, 11, 12, into my teens. And I kind of decided that's what I wanted to pursue, become an architect. So, um, again, this is long story short, <laughs> right? Because, uh, like everyone who is interested in my field, you want to be a great architect. Right. You know? Nobody wants I, to be mediocre. Oh, no. Greatest in the world, right? Um, so I began to pursue just dabbling around, drawing plans and little sketches here and there. But when our family immigrated to the United States in the 1970s, 75 or something like that, um, went straight into architecture school, um, okay. both undergraduate and graduate school. And, um, you know, right after that started practicing, uh, interning, yeah, you moved, uh, you moved to the U.S. at college age, basically. College age, yeah. I was about 18. And, uh, and I worked for a few years. All that was required for me to sit for the architectural registration examination, right? That was a big deal back then. still is. And this is in Massachusetts? This is in California. Okay. Um, we basically lived in two zones before moving to the southeast, California yeah. and Massachusetts, back and forth. Yeah, it looked like your career kind of bounces yeah, back bounces, and forth. Yeah. Right. Um, so, um, uh, worked for a couple of years and then uh, studied to take the architecture registration examination. And back then, it was a four-day ordeal, eight tests in a row. You sweated blood when you did that. Um, studied like crazy ahead of the time, you know nervous about it but I, I did uh, sat for it in fact I passed it on the first attempt which was borderline miraculous really was mm-hmm. it was it quite common to not pass it right away uh, uncommon okay yeah so I was pleasantly surprised I didn't have to keep doing it it's great uh, so I got licensed in 1986 um, <laughs> and I worked in various firms in California um, had my own sole proprietorship for I think one 
think I did all that for about 20 years. Wow. Uh, different firm sizes from Skid Mowings and Merrill, which is a big firm in San Francisco, to my own practice, just me. Would you, would you do both residential and commercial? Yes, so it was pretty much my focus. I love residential design, uh, renovations, did some like commercial work. For a while, I actually did some um, work for a real estate developer, which was mm. sort of a sordid period in my career. Uh, like not as creative, I guess? It was creative in the wrong, all the wrong ways. Okay. You know, uh, designing homes, marketed, uh, for first-time home buyers that were enamored by the front facade only, and basically was uh, anyway. Interesting. It was. Part it was all about the the curb appeal. The all facade. about the curb appeal. Huh. Uh, but that that didn't last too long, thankfully. Um, but after about twenty years or so, um, I joined a startup real estate investment firm in Boston. Um, this was a friend of mine who had. Bunch of investors from Asia who uh, had this vision or mission of uh, doing good by doing well. That was their mantra, mm -hmm. and they yeah, wanted right. to do it through real estate. So I uh, joined the firm as a vice president of development, and eventually, after about a dozen years, I uh, maybe I became the managing director of the firm, and I had about I, I just became it and went into real estate. This company wanted to uh, have an impact uh, using, you know, the profits that they made, and so they would dedicate a chunk of a chunk of change every year to uh, to either donate or contribute to good causes. Okay. Were you still doing actual designing during that phase? Yeah, and so basically, through all these experiences, I was always drawing. Okay. So even even I, I found a couple of pictures the other day that showed me drawing on I think it was a hotel bed. And when I first started this real estate investment firm, I was developing a uh, piece of property. We were developing a piece of property, and, and there was no place for me to draw because I had just moved to the Boston area, so I was drawing on the hotel bed. But through it all, I just kept drawing. I just had an interest in it. Yeah. Could do it fairly well, um, and I just didn't want to have the company pay for somebody else to, to do the work when I could. Right? What, what, do you remember kind of what area, what era it would shift in architecture from doing plans hand-drawn to doing like computer programs? Yeah, so this is, a, this is another area of interest of mine, but I can talk about it later on. Um, uh, when I was in grad school uh, in the early 80s, uh, CAD started to take over firmly embedded in educational curriculum okay, for architecture, for architects, interior designers. Okay. This is when you went to Harvard for your master's? Yes. Okay. And I very, very soon after that, it became a mainstay of most of these programs and hand drawing began to take a back seat. In fact, I, I developed a whole uh, talk on this for, um, uh, for a continuing education program about how we are actually our students today uh, graduating without the ability to draw by hand or at, at a yeah. disadvantage um, in, in a variety of ways, uh, especially cognitively. But anyway, that's that's a whole other subject. But yeah, CAD did take over about, about 25 years or so ago. Okay. And now we've had um, a couple of generations um, to look back on to 
to evaluate um, the pros and cons of all that yeah. technology invading our world. So it's interesting. So just as you were going to grad school, it was this uh, like huge kind of seismic shift in the way that you were going to be working and then working professionally after that. In architecture, you don't have to pick a field per se um, in order to get licensed. In fact, a lot of times you don't know what you want to do until you reach that point. So grad school is uh, intended to um, extend your education in architecture, uh, hopefully to gain more competence. Yeah. Um, and it's a matter of, just like doctors, it's a matter of just putting in the time. It would have been, I guess it would have been so interesting if you had not gone to grad school then and you still were working and then at some point in just your work life, things would have switched from you hand drawing to computer drawing, but you wouldn't have had the benefit of like learning these programs in school. That would have been really different. Yeah, and that actually happens now. A lot of uh, people learn uh, the technology as they work, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not stuff you learn only in school. You, yeah. you pick it up along the way. In fact, it, you know, CAD is indispensable as far as I'm concerned in this day and age. Um, but in a way, at the expense of hand drawing, which has benefits that we may not fully realize. But again, that's yeah, yeah. Another Just, topic. I mean, I guess it can be super beneficial for the field in general, but you don't want to lose hand drawing entirely. You know? That's right. Yeah, that's right. you just need a balance. Yeah. So you, so all these years, you still would be doing on your own. You just really liked doing the ink and watercolor drawings for your own I fun? I tried different methods and approaches. So back then, I was using uh, ink and markers. Um, do you remember those mark the AD yeah. markers? Yeah, uh, like, or like Copic markers, things yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, those are things, if you smell too much of it, you... Yes, they were very strong. Very strong. We did a lot of that, that um, because at that time, they were still using that technology of diazo printing. Do you know that process? No, tell us about that. I know, it's ancient. It's... Um, you draw something on tracing paper and you run a, a print of it through a diazo machine. There's a blue light that transfers through the tracing paper onto this coated um, print paper and it comes out in these beautiful prints. Okay, it comes out opaque. But it has uh, VOCs like crazy. Um, <laughs> the, the printer did? Everything. Okay. Everybody that touched that material oh. would just smell this So you're ammonia just getting high in this room? Uh, it's, all, it's ammonia, basically. It's yeah. developed using ammonia. <laughs> but everyone my in, in my generation of architects growing up would be absolutely familiar with the whole idea oh of starting gosh. when you started an architecture firm, the first thing that you were always tasked to do was make prints. Wow. <laughs> Down in the print room using these diazo machines. Is anyway. That, is that printer just not used anymore? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Absolutely. You can't find those anymore. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, but that's how we grew up, and, and the paper that uh, the Azo prints were made on was conducive to markers. They're okay. fully absorbed, and you can do a lot with it. So that was the technology or the methodology of the day. Right? But that transitioned really quickly when we went into uh, black and white printing um, using um, well, laser printing. Uh, it's a different process of it, and markers will completely dissolve all the ink that you would lay in, that would print on this paper, and so that whole method kind of like this. Okay, so then you had to find a new... We had to find new ways of doing yeah. it. Yeah. But then by that time, CAD came on strong, so uh, people were rendering, or, you know, sending the printers to render yeah. all their all their artwork. And so uh, those of us who stayed with drawing by hand had to find new ways of 
of um, uh, producing this work. Yeah, right? the material that would work. But by that time, I had already moved out of mainstay architecture into real estate development. And uh, shortly thereafter, I, I actually, um, uh, when our kids moved out of the house, you know, uh, we had, we had a, a sort of a lull in the action before we made a big decision about where to move, to retire to. And for a couple of years, I worked at UMass Amherst as a capital projects manager, and I was like, all I did was manage projects. Okay. Didn't draw very much in those days. But then, um, come about 10 years or so, we decided to uh, move south and I got a job at SCAD. Um, Were you applying at different art colleges and you just happened to get SCAD? I, yes, I had tried a, a variety of approaches to how I wanted to get into academia, but the priority was to move somewhere not so cold. Okay. All right, from Massachusetts. So, so what year was this that you came to Savannah? 2013-ish. Okay. Yep. Um, so we uh, got this job at SCAD as a director of the School of Building Arts um, that was at that time primarily um, administrative managerial yeah. position to help the dean with projects and whatever needs to be done in the school. Uh, I really liked academia once I got into it. I saw yeah. the potential for what it could do to influence generations of students that were going into higher ed that would have a huge impact on our profession. Right? Yeah. So I got involved in curriculum design, and of course engaged in hundreds of students and their futures and that was invigorating you know but to the end i i end up becoming associate dean and then dean of the school of building arts um where i was able to think about the future and what curriculum should look like um and i don't know that i had enough time to do this before um scad and i parted ways Had, had I stayed in academia, I think um, I would have pursued a more balanced curriculum, which included craft, which had essentially, in not just the case with SCAD, but many universities, craft has been kind of taken out of the curriculum. Do you mean like making models, like, like building mm, 3D models? Using your hands yeah. right, to draw, to build. I'm not just talking about architecture, any of the creative pursuits to pottery, sculpture, um, metalwork, you know, like mad tool stuff, using your hands in this craft. Yeah. One of the uh, books that <clears throat> our dean, prior, you know, midway through this time at SCAD, gave a copy to every faculty was um, a book uh, by Johanny Plasma called The Thinking Hand where he talks about um, the hand as being sort of a prodigious instrument of the, of the mind and uh, without which um, creativity would, would, would uh, suffer, right? The, the fact that you can touch something, whether it's a pencil or a pot or a lump of clay or a paper or scissors um, with your hands uh, has a significant impact on how creative you can be. 
Very different from using a keyboard and a mouse. Right. Yeah. Or even with a with a stylus on a on the tablet. On the tablet, um, it's a very different process. You know, um, yeah. I don't know. You draw, so you know. I mean, you put a pencil on a piece of paper with some texture. The feel of it's so different between yeah. the stylus on the screen. You know? Yeah. Even different from using a tablet for like a quote unquote pencil tool. It just is different to put it right. on paper. And it's a lot to do with that connection between the hand and the brain. So anyway, I think I would have pursued that uh, as as a, a way of balancing the yeah. curriculum. Um, when, not, student, when students go through architecture school now, do are they still building like three D models out of little cardboard less and things less. and wood things? Okay, because I remember less when I was and young less. and I had architecture friends, they were always carrying around these yes. huge three D models. That's how you cut your teeth. See, you, when when I started my first job at Skidmore in Maryland, San Francisco. Aside from running blueprints in the Diazo machine room where all the ammonia was, uh, I think for three or four months straight, I was just building models. Yeah. Cutting chipboard, cutting fingers. Right. You know. Chipboard and like that balsa wood, that really thin balsa wood. wood. And you're using exacto knives and well, things. We could graduate a foam core. That's right. <laughs> you would have. I remember my friends who had who did architecture, and they would have little trees would be dotted around. Mm -hmm. You had to like. They had to conceive of all of that too. Sometimes they'd have tiny people. So yeah, <laughs> to show the scale. To show the scale. <laughs> but nowadays, um, that has uh, taken a back seat in most design programs um, in the country, and uh, I think there needs to be a balancing out of that. Yeah. The resurrection of um, the use of craft or the reintroduction of craft and the use of the hand. I think there is. Yeah, there's more understanding of three-dimensionally of what you're actually building mm -hmm. that you get when you have to actually use your hands and put something together as opposed to even if you are really good on the computer and mm -hmm. doing things there's just like a different level of understanding when it, you've had to it is. put oh, it together uh, uh, what i was gonna you know maybe get to later on in, if, if there's time is that um in the last 20 years there have been increasing numbers of neuroscientific studies that have demonstrated actually proved that when you use your hands to draw, to create a craft, um, it activates certain parts of your brain, the deep structures of your brain and the limbic system, in particular this structure called the hippocampus, mm. which is actually uh, responsible for learning and memory and creativity. And now it's been proven that drawing by hand uh, activates it uh, to the tune of, you can recall anywhere from 25 to 50 percent more of what you think you remember if you actually draw it and write it and um, people who draw by hand um, have an increased capacity to uh, be creative and to solve problems it's all connected to so cool. the rest part of your brain yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting that can be helpful for, for people working with like the elderly or people having memory issues to right. encourage them to draw right yeah did you ever, this is kind of just random, I was wondering if you ever worked with your dad on any project together? No, the generations uh, were too far apart and he um, practiced in Singapore and Malaysia um, well before I started my education, so there was not much crossover. I recall uh, drawing a plan in his office. I would just go down to his office um, on Emerald Hill in Singapore. 
just randomly recall that. And um, did a couple of drawings there, but no, yeah. not, not much in terms. In fact, I don't think we worked on any projects together. Okay. Was he very supportive of you becoming an architect? Um, yeah, clearly yeah. he was excited about me pursuing that. Um, and uh, and in, in general, very supportive. Uh, right through uh, the educational uh, phase of my life um, but I there wasn't I think we came from different um, aesthetic backgrounds okay um, and so we didn't actually talk much about architecture strangely mm. yeah it is a little strange yeah it is a strange uh, cultural is a cultural difference because he was educated in the Far East and in England and I was oh. educated in the United States and back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, those very different worlds. This was before, for example, it was before the uh, American Institute of Architects recognized the Royal Institute of British Architects, the RIBA, which is the licensing oh. component in England, and vice versa. Huh. You know, they were like, <laughs> kept very separate. <laughs> they were wary of each other. Just different. Well, different now, so now you live in a town where the historic downtown, the architecture is so influenced by what, like, Ireland and England that yeah, era, right? Yeah, yeah, It's a much smaller world we live in now. <laughs> Do you, is there a particular um, era or, I don't know what the word would be, field of architecture that you've always just really liked aesthetically? Well, residential has always been yeah. close to heart. I think residential, you know, primarily because that's where people live. Okay. But isn't like a certain chunk of time like a, oh, a time yeah. period oh, of the style of it oh, that you've always responded to oh, or wow all right so my my sentiments in that area are bifurcated right uh, almost hypocritical actually <laughs> on one hand um frank lord wright had a big influence on me yeah still does um on the other hand i have a deep appreciation for historical precedents. So, uh, love old buildings, the details yeah. that um, involve craft and um, craftsmanship. Like things that are purely decorative? No, not things that are decorative but have meaning because they um, are done in such a careful way that thousands of hours of time of crafting certain aspects of a building um, add meaning to the building. Can you give an example of that? Um, go around this town in particular. Um, I mean, if you go to, if you, if you look at the uh, Masonic uh, Lodge, the, what's it called? The Shriners Lodge that is um, across from Shopscad, that yes. big building? Yes. You look up at the dentals, uh, the, the, the crown molding, yeah. and all that, and you know you, you can buy that stuff nowadays. It's so well crafted. Um, it gives you a sense of permanence, gives you a sense of dedication, gives you a sense of commitment and beauty, and that no one wants to see that go away. Right. It's very grand. And um, I mean, examples all over places, and you know where you find most of it is in Europe. Um, whereas, on the other hand, the 
there's something a lot to be said and get enamored with with modern quote unquote using my fingers here architecture where it strives for simplicity um, which is sort of this maybe historic thrust uh, between what human beings are always trying to do on one hand simplify on one hand build meaning and increase complexity and you're always pushing and pulling throughout history you know but it's um, thinking an aspect of Frank Lloyd Wright I mean like you said that it's pared down and simple but everybody looks at it and marvels at the beauty and I guess because he was really focusing on the buildings like coming out of nature almost like they were unearthing from nature so it's like he's just building on the beauty of nature so maybe the building itself can be a little more mm-hmm. pared down and simple yeah I, um, I mentioned that uh, Wright had a deep influence on me early in college and undergrad and in grad school Um, and full circle I in the last five years have been deeply involved with uh, working at Falling Water yes and um, I saw that I really want to talk to you about that yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. to to, to that point that you just made uh, my appreciation for that building and Wright's work has deepened Um, sometimes you know familiarity breeds contempt and Mm. Definitely not in this case. No, <laughs> it just gets. I'm sure it's more and more. House, you know, you just marvel at the level of thought that went into it, mm. and how a building as relatively simple as that, through a singular conceptual decision that Wright made, and the subsequent details that followed through by him and his team, has lasted almost 80 years and still attracts anywhere from 170 to 200,000 visitors a year. Yeah. It's an amazing... um, Yeah, just so timeless. It's it's an amazing um, symbol, I think, of maybe what people look for in architecture. You know? um, But yeah, it's uh, it's been been lovely just being up in, in Mill Run. You know, Mill Run is a uh, is a tiny little have you been to no I've been you know I, I really I want to talk to you about this we're getting to or at a good point for a station break okay so when we get back we will delve much more deeply into falling water cool so everyone um, this is Arts on the Air and I'm Tamara Garvey and I'm with Ivan Chow and we will be back you are listening to WRUULP Savannah Georgia 107.5 FM we are Savannah Soundings community radio with a global soul Trees are one of Chatham County's most treasured natural resources. Beyond their beauty and cultural significance, the impact of trees are far-reaching and compounding, spanning from economic benefits to health improvements to climate change resilience. Trees are woven into every aspect of our lives. Savannah Tree Foundation protects and grows Chatham County's urban forest through tree planting, community engagement, and advocacy. More information is available at savannatree.org. This portion of WRUU's programming is brought to you by listeners and by Brighter Day Natural Foods. Brighter Day Natural Foods has been serving Savannah's healthy food and supplement needs since 1978. It is located at the corner of Bull Street and Park Avenue. 
They have online ordering and curbside delivery available. And now a walk-up window for smoothies, juices, and sandwiches from the deli. They are open from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. Monday through Saturday and 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Sunday. More information can be found at brighterdayfoods.com. What does it mean when we say that WRUU is a community radio station? It doesn't just mean that we invite the community to create programming. And it doesn't just mean that we're a voice for the community. It also means that we're counting on the community to keep us going. And you are the community. Almost all of our modest budget comes from small annual or monthly donations from listeners like you. You get to enjoy our community-focused programming because many others have stepped forward to do their part. Now do your part by joining our community of listener donors. Go to WRUU.org right now and make a one-time or monthly donation. And thank you for supporting Savannah's community radio station, 107.5 FM. Hey everyone, welcome back. This is Arts on the Air and I'm Tamara Garvey and I'm sitting with Ivan Chow. Welcome back, Ivan. Um, So Ivan, um, we were talking about, uh, Ivan is a trained architect and has had a whole career as an architect and but the entire time for 50 years he's also been doing drawings of cityscapes and buildings and it's always been ticking away in the background and it looks like maybe five years ago or so around mm-hmm. 2018 you got an is it called an artist in residency mm-hmm. at falling water mm-hmm. frank Lloyd wright's building can yep. you talk a little bit about how you came into this sure um it's actually um someone i knew uh, worked with at scad who uh, then became the director um, at falling water mm-hmm. and um, went up to visit him and got to know the staff up there and one thing led to another and was invited to be artist in residence which is really a, a way of inviting artists to um, apply their craft both on-site and off-site um, through the inspiration of the building right so the first thing I did was two sketches of the house from the exterior which I didn't think a whole lot of because I was doing it in one of the uh, cabins that they offered to let me stay in while I was there. Um, and then uh, got excited but and started drawing more and more um, of the building. And then uh, one thing led to another, got involved in helping the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy, which is the, uh, what do you call it, the... Um, the steward of okay. the property. They care. They have a fairly large um, collection of buildings that were donated by the Kaufman family. And uh, I was asked to do a survey of all the properties because of my background in architecture and urban design. So I did that, made some recommendations as to how they could manage the portfolio going forward. Mm. Then I got involved in um, something they had begun to formalize called the Falling Water Institute where it was like the educational arm of the Western Pennsylvania Conservancy related to Falling Water the building and they started had been running uh, residencies and workshops 
and uh, they will begin to formalize that whole process. So it got involved teaching some of those residencies. So it's pretty new for people to be having it's these residencies less than and workshops. 10 years there. there you That's know. interesting that it hadn't been going on for longer. It had been, but not in more of the formal way that it started yeah. to take shape. Um, they hired a curator of education that huh. really begun to um, uh, formalize these offerings. Initially, uh, the residencies were targeted at high school okay. students, the younger generation, and quickly expanded into college and grad school. Um, and now, in fact, so I've been teaching residencies for five years now, and the most recent one completed in September was the first time they had offered a residency to design professionals. And, um, and in fact, we were able to secure, um, this, is, this, is, this is Architect Talk, American Institute of Architects, um, uh, Continuum Education, HSW units, which is Health, Safety, Welfare units, eight credits for attending this workshop. So it's um, a first for uh, okay. the Water Institute. So professionals can use this as a formal like yes. aspect of their CV, basically. Yes. Is the so the actual falling water house? Is it in good shape conservation wise, or had it fallen into kind of disrepair and it needed to be? Well, falling water has always preserved. been uh, deteriorating just by virtue of the fact that Wright never intended for it to last forever. Uh, the biggest challenge they faced about 20 years ago was the restructuring of the cantilever decks. So that's an amazing story. Uh, if you get a chance to read about it, um, it's online pretty much. Uh, anywhere you find it, but the restructuring of the cantilever deck um, sort of began a wave of reconstruction um, to preserve the building. Okay. Um, and that's ongoing. They just began a three-year uh, project of resealing all the grout in the chimneys and basically the house is leaking yeah. as one would expect it after 80 years of sitting out in the rain and they're in the process of restoring all that and sealing the building. Yeah. Um, it's kind of everything that's happening to it related to it being on this body of water, basically? No, actually, it's above the body of water. Yeah. So there's not a lot of infiltration, but it is on a hillside, so there's a lot of groundwater that seeps in and around the building. There's a lot of rain out there yeah. in the year. And so yeah, it's like a beautiful time, leafy forest. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, but I... I uh, got involved with that, um, and I was invited to sell some of my artwork in the form of note cards and matted prints in a gift store, which was a first for me. Yeah. Um, so I started to package those, you know, as carefully and neatly as I could. So were, were you printing them yourself? How did you go about I began, getting this done? Yes, I began okay. by printing a few myself yeah. just to give it a shot. Because it's so interesting. A lot of our viewers are people who are like getting into their own art fields yeah, and this man, whole uh buy a canon pixma 100 yeah you know? yeah and you, you take the jump you start doing your own printing and then yeah, you order from red, red river paper like everybody does yes and then, yes uh, you start printing these cards and you find a place <laughs> to buy little cellophane sleeves and envelopes you slip yep. it in there and you have yep. to make the big decision about the price point you have your own little assembly line or packaging mm -hmm, thing so you yeah. start selling your prints and cards in the shop was that super exciting it's like a whole different Very exciting. whole different way of making money in art than you had been doing and so, but you never know how it's going to do. You never know it's going to sell, not sell, how many going to sell. So I started out printing your own, but very soon it became um, clear that they would do very well. And um, in the past 
four years. I think I've sold um, you know, five or six thousand cards and fifteen hundred prints. I can imagine. I mean, your drawings are stunningly beautiful. So of course, people at the gift shop are going to be buying your cards. Also, <laughs> this is important uh, for those uh, looking to have long-term relationships with retailers. Um, we did arrange, we had an agreement. I had an agreement with Falling Water that I would be the only hand-drawn product. Oh, interesting. In the store. So they can have other artwork of it, but it's computer-designed art, or is that? Yeah, you know I mean? or some other okay. hybrid form. You like know. There, okay, it's so a, there could be loose. photo prints, but not yes, other drawing correct. prints. Yeah. Okay, so it's it. sort of a loose arrangement. I don't check. <laughs> but... That's a good. That's a good agreement you have with them. It's it was um, usually beneficial because I can't I can't sell that product anywhere else. Um, one of the, the more exciting uh, contributions and partner and sort of collaborations I did was for for all the years that up until maybe three years ago when visitors arrive at the property they go through the gatehouse and they'll be handed like an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper folded. Um, with a little tab on it that showed what time your tour was going on, uh, scheduled for. And on that 8 half by 11, there would be a map of the property, there would be some rules, what you could and couldn't do, and then there would be some information about the house in the back of it. And that's what every visitor would get. And um, the director thought, hey, we need to like change that up and make something a little more formal, get some new, um, some, uh, a new guide, a new visitor guide. So. Um, I came up with the idea, and I'm just sorry I didn't bring one for you. I'll give it to you next time. We can post a photo with your show. <laughs> of a, an accordion fold visitor guide, uh, the size of a half-size notebook, you know, a standard moleskin little sketchbook. Okay. That you could actually fold up and put in your sketchbook as part of a travel experience. But I had it uh, full color, um, no um, bleed product um, accordion fold yeah and I did all the drawings on it they wanted a hand-drawn product to represent some of the craft of the building and its designer oh wow so I, I did a you know watercolor of the building watercolor of the house and I had keyed all the different locations people could go to and what was what and yeah the visitor guide and all that and they had a little history of the building and a little section of what I could, couldn't do on was it side. all your handwriting too I developed a font. Okay. I call it the Frank font. Oh. And I wow. would I actually uh, wrote the letters the way Frank thought I would have written it on a drawing, and I created a font with it, and I used that. Wow. Because you have a beautiful in your own sketchbooks, you have this really beautiful cursive writing that you do. But I would imagine the Frank font is more like like on architectural drawings where it's yes, very yes, precise yes, and easy yes, to read, right? Just the way you would see it. On it's like it's like graph paper sized letters, right? That's yes. what I imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, um, cool produced that. It's a they Frank liked. font. Frank font. I love it. Um, and they, they liked it. Um, we produced uh, the first printing was uh, 10,000. That mm -hmm. went really quickly. And then. And you had to come up with, so also designing this three dimensional book is mm -hmm. like packaging design. That's a whole other field. Packaging design and then getting it printed, finding the right printer at the right yeah, price. It's a complicated thing to print. To, uh, to produce this thing in a timely fashion, have it delivered to Falling Water, and then um, knowing that you'll have a long-term relationship with this printer, right. you need to make sure that with the right printer and the right relationship, the right attitude towards this. Um, so each visitor is getting this piece for free. 
when they well they pay for the tour get the membership yeah all right yeah but and it's like, this the is way a we nice see it piece. it's a keepsake the way yeah. we see it and the way we know it's working is because the staff don't see it thrown away anymore right right they used to see all these eight and a half by eleven strewn by the sidewalks yeah. and the trash don't see the stone. They don't even see it in the hotel rooms anymore. They used to have. Oh, nice. So I think the second printing was hundred thousand. Wow. And I go like, okay, that lost a while, but within a year that was gone. So um, then thirty thousand more, and then we just made another order for thirty thousand. That's incredible. I know. So did you have? Was this just part of your artist residency, or are you getting any kind of? No, that was a separate consulting. from okay. No, they just. Okay paid me I quoted a fee to do it yeah because uh, this is like a proper illustration job you had it's an illustration job yeah right. I didn't you know and the, expect it, the, but it was lovely. the quantities you're talking about yeah. is, it's great and just like my little uh, agreement to be the only hand-drawn product in the gift store I was able to put a little fine print you know of my Facebook page oh fantastic you know, but me, they let you do maid, that, yeah. <laughs> and I tucked it in beside one of the drawings. Yeah. You know, so if yeah. anybody look closely enough, I am there. Because you never know. I mean, with that, with that quantity of these pieces being produced and going through people's hands, you never know who might look at this. Who might be a book publisher or somebody needing a job or somebody right. looking at well, this. Well, someone and already your name. has contacted me about doing another one for another uh, similar property. That is I, incredible. But I'm not. I wasn't that interested in expanding my reach to yeah. that point you know we just just now talked about some things um, are right at the right time right not wrong at the right time or right at the wrong not time taking on every single possible project or avenue that you could possibly do but I'm just delighted that uh, you know 150,000 people I don't know yeah might have one that's of incredible. these tucked somewhere in that bookshelf and know. the whole point of putting your name on it is for someone to see it and maybe contact you yeah. so it's amazing. So I, I do uh, quite a number of things uh, with Falling Water and enjoy very yeah. much the relationship we, we have. Uh, and we're constantly expanding the reach, um, like I mentioned, from high school to college to grad students to design professionals. And then um, next year, um, I really want to hunker down and do more drawing residencies. And those are very beneficial, a few that I've done. Um, and you know, there's a cadre of people that want to do this, to teach this. Um, yeah. Not that many around the country. And uh, I begin, I'm beginning to recruit some colleagues who might want to be a part of this as well. So that's been fun. We'll, we'll, we'll spread the word for that. <laughs> do you have any? Pro I'm curious, just um, formally in your drawings. Do you prefer drawing the exteriors of buildings, or do you like doing interiors of rooms too? Um, I don't have a preference. Okay. It's, it's more about observation. So what I say, like in this book on travel sketching that I gave you, it's about um, it's, uh, observing the world, the built environment more carefully. Right? If you draw a scene or a building, it forces you to look more closely at the building. Take yeah. a photograph of it. There's a slim chance you'll go back to look at that photo unless you're copying some detail from it. But if you draw it, chances are you'll remember a whole lot more. Yeah. Even if it's a quote-unquote bad drawing of it, the fact that you're putting pencil or pen down on paper while looking at a detail or an aspect of the building um, enhances your experience of it. Yeah. So if you actually engage in the practice of travel sketching, which is I consider a discipline, 
It's not something that comes naturally when you travel. But if you engage in it, you will enjoy your trip so much more. To the point that, in fact, I make that point in this book, Travel Sketching, that I rarely buy souvenirs from the places I visit anymore. Oh, because you've just gotten to know them so deeply through no, your drawing? No, 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 because my sketches have become my souvenirs. Okay. They have become my keepsakes, my personal keepsakes from these places because when I look at them, I remember. Yeah, and then we can, in a better way, then we buy your book, and then we have, we're seeing your keepsakes of the place as well. You are. As a keep, but you almost need keep, to go My there. keepsake is your keepsakes. Yes, but now, <laughs> now you need, sort of like in Sketching Savannah, I organized it in kind of constellations, you see. So, yeah, so what I, yes. what I really would so love. So Ivan has given me, very kindly, a copy of his Sketching Savannah book and of his travel sketching book. But you see, under this Bull Street constellation, for example, right, I placed in dots all the places I've sketched yeah. and connected it by sort of these dashes. It's like a walking tour. It is and I want one day someone to come to me randomly out of the blue in some strange place. Hey, I just did the Bull Street Constellation from the Oh yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> and then your other book said so the travel sketching is specifically about Istanbul, is that right? It is, so okay. that's more of an instructional book. Uh, it's also like a memoir. Like instructional about drawing? About travel sketching and its okay. benefits. How I do it, um, why I do it, the different uh, mental states I'm in when I do the different different ways. Yeah. But I, because I had a significant enough body of work from Istanbul, I decided to use that as my sole source because it covered all those bases that I was trying to cover. This must have been a really fun city to sketch in because it's the buildings are very Eastern. And yes. Is it like a melding of Eastern and Western architecture there? Uh, not a whole lot of Western. Okay. Mostly. It's a, lo it's a lot of domes. A lot of domes. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, my daughter taught there for four years. Okay. Um, she taught science in the national school, and so I made four trips to visit her, and that's why I was very <laughs> cool. so much collateral. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you got experience doing bridges and riverscapes as well on that. All, all the above. Yeah. I'm hoping one day this will make it into some some curriculum as as a as a required reading. Uh, in fact, that's going to be my next one of my next projects next year. Yeah. To get them into. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about so when you started? Um, this, your book, Sketching Savannah, did you first publish this in 2021? Mm -hmm. Okay, yes. and it's like a collection of, it's over 100 sketches, so you've been working on them for years. Yeah. How did you decide to put it together into a book? Um, I, I had been already selling note cards of certain sketches, and um, they were doing okay, yeah. but I got a little impatient, I guess. And, and I thought, what if I put them all together? Yeah. Then I realized, well, I don't quite have enough, so I need to do some more. So I made an effort to go around and sketch different views and scenes and buildings that I had not already covered. And one thing led to another, and then I had a body of work that I felt was about 125, 126 sketches that I thought was, hey, this could actually go into a book, but who would I market it to, right? It wouldn't be the same as how I did travel sketching be very different this one ah came up with the idea not rocket science that before covid i think the chamber of commerce reported 12 to 13 million tourists come to savannah every year and i thought ah 
This is my local market. It's yeah. like a baked-in market. <laughs> I live in Savannah. I've been sketching Savannah. <laughs> and I've got 13 million tourists. I love that you just realized you lived in a real tourism destination. But you never pay attention to the numbers unless you start doing yeah, something numbers, yeah. that for, it, for which it was relevant, right? <laughs> Where so, had you been selling your cards up until now? Um, How were you doing that? I just randomly brought a bunch of them down to City Market and I found uh, okay. Retailer says, "Oh, we'll give it a try." You know? Like you'd walk into a shop, basically. And yeah, yeah, these yeah. Cards. Okay. And you like, "Hey, we don't have a rack. Could you build a rack as well?" <laughs> so uh, I go home and build a little plywood rack. You know, that's how I started. Okay. I went to you know, the River Street. Same thing. You know, so I'm like, oh, try it in, in the yeah. markets. You know, the market square down there, marketplace or whatever. You were kind of like cold calling your cards I was, around. I was. Yeah. But it was not hard because I live in Savannah. I'm there all the time. <laughs> I had been consulting uh, with the architect designing Plan Riverside. So I was there all the time. Oh, cool. Yeah. And you said and at this point in your architecture career, you're sort of like, you're winding it down. So yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm trying, I'm still trying to, spare time. I'm trying to wean myself off of architecture, but it's not been easy. Got it. Um, weaning down from that and weaning up into, into art. art. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, then um, I, I went to the visitor center on MLK, and they got really interested, and so they bought a bunch of cards and books. Yeah. Um, and then I am now am selling. I'm just I have a, a couple of panels at the Savannah Gallery of Art on. Oh, great. Broughton, um, Lincoln, I think. Yes, yeah, right next to that uh, that bar, Abe's. Yes. They seem to be doing well. I think they got a lot of people in there. They got a lot of traffic. Yeah. Uh, and then. Plant Riverside picked up a whole bunch um, because I did I did a set of cards just for Plant Riverside. Yeah, I mean, what Some a beautiful thing to draw. So, so those was something well. So, I, so the book. So, how did you get the book published? Right. So this was again. I already dabbled in self-publishing uh, with travel sketching with my other book, and I thought, okay, I can probably do this because that first book had forced me back into InDesign and Photoshop. And oh, now yeah. I'm a little more familiar with it, so I had the layouts. I also found my sweet spot in terms of dimensional proportions for seven by nine inches, and no one does seven by nine. Really? I mean, uh, Ingram Spark doesn't do seven by nine; do seven huh. quarter by nine and a half. And all those publishers have different standard sizes, and none of them are seven by nine. Yeah. So I knew that and if, I, if I wanted to do that size. And also, if I wanted to keep the cost down, I would have to self-publish. And the biggest factor I found was that a lot of publishers don't include the option of gloss finish on the interior. Um. And sketches and drawings and color really need to have that gloss finish to look sharp. The matte finishes just don't look. Yeah, just the colors are not as saturated. They're not as saturated. So I said, okay, how many pages? I don't know. Let's just start. And then I came up with the concept of these constellations. I grew them and did some planning on it. Yeah. And I started putting some sketches together, realizing that I've got some gaps. So I went out and did a couple of sketches to fill in those gaps. Yeah. Um, realized... and, then they're, and they're beautiful. They have, um, it's your thoughts as you go through. It's sort of like a mixture of your artistic thoughts and then just actually like mm-hmm. factoids. And, and the factoids were important, I think, because if tourists come, they need to remember why, what, how, who. Yeah. Um, and I sourced it from one of my colleagues at the time, Robin Williams, who runs the architectural history department, who's the chair. 
has been the chair of that department for over 20 years. Um, he and his colleagues put out a book, um, Buildings of Savannah, and I used that as a source and I quoted them there so I could get the most accurate information. Yeah. Came up with these captions. It took a while to kind of put things together and I realized that, hey, this could become a book, you know. And um, so I used, you know, a combination of InDesign, Photoshop, uh, put together the layout myself. Yeah, the layout is very complicated. I did farm out, I did try uh, farming out the cover design and a few other aspects like page layout using uh, Fiverr. I never tried Fiverr. It's a, resources, uh, a resource of, of small business owner professionals that provide specific services like cover design. Okay. And so these covers were designed by, I don't even, never met her, a um, woman in, I think, Ser Serbia, I guess that's where she's from, using my, my material. My, wow, very cool. Yeah. Um, and these books are sold at eShaver. Now. Yeah. And anyway, to, to finish that process out, I had to yeah. find a printer. Right. And so I got quotes from different ones, and I finally found a pretty good printer that would do gloss interior, gloss exterior. The costs were okay, the timeline was great, and so I give them a, a try. And the um, pretty good. Um, the trickiest part was that a, a lot of these printing services do not include layout services you have to pay extra for that so you could get your InDesign layouts exactly the way you want because then they're going to print exactly what you send right. them that's a PDF so if you have your spine text which I learned if it's just a hair off they will print it a hair off got it they're not going to catch that for you so my second printing was a hair off okay what kind of quantities like to for the first printing, just to make sure that everything is okay, what kind of quantities did you have to do? I started with 300. Right? Okay. Very low key, you pay more per copy, yeah. but I wasn't going to do any more until the new would sell. Test it out. And the second was five, <laughs> and then this one is a thousand, so. Cool. I know this one. You're on your third printing now. Third printing. Cool. Yeah. So for locals, they can get it at eShaver, and then? Well, I got it at eShaver, and yeah. the Red Plant Riverside is at the Savannah Gallery of Art. It's okay. at Locally Made Savannah. Oh, that's a great shop. It's a great little shop. I finally got on the racks at Barnes & Noble in the Old Thorpe Mall. That's Mall. incredible. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's and then online. For, and yeah, for people not in town, it's on Amazon. Amazon and Facebook. Okay. Yeah. And those, that was another interesting process of trying to sell online, you know, because I find it very labor-intensive, um, not in the producing it, but in delivering it. You have to package it, send it, bring it to the post office and do all that. And that's... In the beginning, when, when you have a lot of orders and you can bundle your deliveries to the post office, whatever, that's fine. But if you, it's on a one-off basis, it's just labor-intensive. But, again, it's available. You're really, it's, you've really <laughs> launched like a whole illustrator kind of career because everything you're talking about is all the same things that I do too. Yeah, we have orders on Etsy or on your website and shopping yeah. things around to local shops and printing them and assembling them. It's yeah. my exact career. I'm doing it for my retirement though. Yeah, I love this, you're doing it for fun. <laughs> but as I was mentioning to you during the break, you know, what for 50 years uh, was drawing was a means to an end. I'm looking now in my retirement to turn those means into an end, to explore what that entails. And it's a little nervous about it, but, um, but it has potential. Yeah. Is there any um, subject matter or town or any type of drawing that you haven't yet done that you're 
curious about? A lot. A lot. Um, I'm actually going to embark on a, a different product. Most of my work, if you see it, is um, very tight. It's sort of a, a default of my having been an architect for so many years. It's uh, the discipline, the very fine lines, and the tensions towards accuracy. All that comes from my architectural background, you know, and I, I joke about it in my, in my, when I'm asked to write an artist statement, how it's always these forces are at war with one another. The obligation for, toward accuracy and precision yeah. is at war with the inner artist trying to be like artistic, you know, right. and throw the that paint on. Gestural, and, emotive quality of exactly, it. Exactly, and yeah. you know, my plein air sketches show that artistic quality but my architect side goes like wow that's not even close to what it looks like <laughs> and then when I go in the studio the architect side takes over and goes no 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 you gotta be really accurate and it comes out so you can see that in my books how mm. the studio work is a lot tighter more architectural the planner work is just loosey loosey and um, there are people who like you know one style and most of my commission work likes the architectural style. Okay. Don't ask me why. Um, so within your book, we're seeing both styles, seeing basically. Both styles. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And it's sort of it's a reflective of where I am in, in life. You know, I'm trying to wean one off the other, but yeah. you really can't. Your life is, is a amalgamation of all your experiences. You know, it's really difficult, maybe unnecessary, to try to extract one from the other. Right. You know, and, but how does it all come together after 40 or 50 years is kind of where I am. You know? I think, yeah, it's just about accepting that there's not one is better than the other, and you can have both, and that's great, and that's okay. And, you have and both what sides. happens when they all come together? Yeah. You know? and you're, I mean, is, they're, it, is it a mess? And they're very successful both <laughs> ways. So, like, you have those, you have those two aspects to your personality, and that's fine. Just accept it. Yeah. Right. Okay, exactly. <laughs> um, well, it's such a pleasure. Is there any um, any kind of final things that you'd like to talk about or leave us with? Any? Well, I guess if I about Savannah or. This is one thing I'm learning about art, is that you can't put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> so I've got, as we talked about during the break, you know, many irons in the fire. Uh, I do retail sales, I do commission work, I do some teaching, self-publishing, yeah. I have a gallery. It keeps it interesting for you. I also teach an art class for seniors. Oh, where is that? Uh, it's at a um, nursing home called Buckingham South okay. in Habersham. Woods, and um, it's it's remarkable how art can bring, how much joy it can bring to octogenarians. It's a hard word to say. Also, and we were just talking about that uh, doing actual hand drawing that it helps your hippocampus and your memory. And so that's the last great. the last iron of fire. I'm, I'm sort of more interested in pursuing uh, the continuing education of you know for. Beginning design students and young architects who might be missing out by not being able to draw by hand. Right. And now, not just saying it's a good thing, but showing what your brain, what happens in your brain when you draw by hand, and the benefits that you could reap from it. I think it's a message that needs to get out there. I, I did a I did a presentation at the AIA the regional conference in Nashville yeah. about a month ago. And uh, it's well received. It's a talk specifically about uh, the neuroscience of drawing by hand. Uh, it's a fascinating topic, and 
things got some legs. That's fantastic. Well, so I'll include um, when I post about your interview. I'll include you know a lot of photos of your books and your sketches. And if I can get a photo of that really cool accordion pamphlet yeah. that you did for Falling Water, I'd love to do that. That sounds fascinating. I have a video clip on it. Oh, even better. Hold up, yeah. Of the action of the accordion. Action of the accordion. <laughs> well, thank you, Ivan. This has been such a pleasure. Thanks for talking to us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Next up on WRUU, that old Savannah magic from 4 to 6 p.m. It's a variety show featuring Savannah history, radio theater, interviews, and music. You are listening to WRUULP, Savannah, Georgia, 107.5 FM. We are Savannah Soundings, community radio with a global soul.